Welcome into the show. It is Memorial Day 2019. Thanks for tuning in. Really appreciate it. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call in all time zones in between and around the world. We apologize for getting started just a few minutes late this morning due to some technical difficulties, but we're here. Rocking it on Memorial Day. Welcome into the show. We will have uh, Mark Snell joining us in just a few moments uh, to talk about Fort Worth Vaqueros, his background in the game, etc. Really excited to have him on. Had a chance to uh, to talk with him recently while I was out in Fort Worth, Texas, um, for some for a family wedding uh, a few months ago and uh, look forward to having him on the show here in just a few moments um, look it it was um, it was the final kind of warm-up game for the US women's national team leading into the World Cup 2019 taking place this summer in France and uh, the US had a three nil win against Mexico. And, um, you know, so it was, uh, it was, a, it was a, you know, kind of a, a good game for them getting ready to, to head overseas and just, and to see if, if they can defend their title. Um, and, and, uh, we will all be watching, all be, uh, be rooting for the women's national team to, to, to do it again here in 2019. I think, I do think it's going to be difficult. Um, it, it's always difficult to defend a title, but looking at what's going on uh, in the landscape of women's soccer, there are countries investing in women's soccer around the world that are traditional cultural powerhouses in the game of football, the global game of soccer. And, and so we have to understand this. We have to recognize this. It's not good enough that the NWSL has, you know, nine to ten teams in its top division. We we need to be making sure that we have opportunities for our ladies in this country, the women in this country, to play at the highest level and to play it at multiple levels throughout this country, not just the NWSL, but we need an open pyramid on the women's side. We talk about it a lot 
in in, in terms of a, a a picture for American soccer for U.S. soccer. I don't think that that I myself have have talked enough about the fact that we need this pyramid on on the men's side, but we also need it on the women's side. We need opportunity anywhere, everywhere. If you are a, a club and, 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 and someone who wants to build a club and you are in, you know, Sacramento, California, you're in Phoenix, Arizona, you're in, you know, you're in, in Denver, Colorado, you are in Memphis, Tennessee, it should not matter what city you are in. Build a quality club, win on the field, move your way up, provide opportunities for the women in your area, just like you could provide opportunities for the men in your area to play the game at the highest levels in an open market in an open system we don't have these depressed wages we actually activate scouts and um, agents because now they're going to have a, an incentive to find players sell players move players and get these the soccer economy actually up and running we don't participate in that way and so uh, we, we've definitely have got to do that and and take those strides and it would help our women's program on the national team level by providing more and more opportunities for women to play around this country at the highest level and in multiple levels pushing them and helping them get better uh, i think i think that would be a tremendous asset for us that we are currently not tapping into and it's uh, it's something that we've We've got to to get better at as a country, which is giving opportunity to anyone everywhere and letting letting merit become what decides us. You know, it's often said that we do not have promotion and relegation in this country. And that that is true from a national governing body uh, systemic level, you know, level level one major league soccer, level two USL championship, level three USL league one. And then you have this amateur space that is unsanctioned uh, from a divisional standpoint by U.S. soccer. None of these leagues are connected based on merit. But we have had eight teams in the last uh, several years who have been promoted to the top division in this country. It's just that their promotion has not come based on sporting merit. In the case of Minnesota United, they left the NASL and were promoted to Major League Soccer even though they finished in last place that season in the NASL. They jumped all the teams, including the team that won the league that year and were promoted to Major League Soccer because they agreed to pay a promotion fee, i.e. an expansion fee, to Major League Soccer. This is not what FIFA intended when they wrote the rules on sporting merit, when they talked about promotion relegation, when they said that things should be based primarily on on-field performance. Other factors are, are included to make sure that the standards are maintained once you are there and that you are viable, etc. But that should not be how you get there. And, and so we've seen promotion and, and we've seen it in, in a really, really dysfunctional way take place in this country. And, uh, and so, you know, for all those who say that we don't have promotion relegation, we've had it. We've just had a three-eyed monster version of it. And, and it's just not, 
what we need for this country. It's not going to help us get where we need to go. So, um, really, really glad you, you tuned into the show. And, uh, like I said, if you're watching this live, I'm really, uh, sorry. We're really sorry that, um, you know, that we, we've had some technical difficulties this Memorial Day morning, but uh, we are up and running. Never fear, we are here, and uh, we are going to be back in just a minute uh, after a break from our sponsor, Charity Water, with Mark Snell. If you don't know about Charity Water, Charity Water provides clean drinking water to people all over the world. Villages, they are changing lives. They are changing villages. They, they are helping kids be able to get to school and and not have to be going so far to get clean drinking water they are able to get it right there in their villages and that gives them more time to to learn a trade to go to school to get educated to make their lives better they are doing incredible work check them out at charitywater.org um they they are definitely an organization that you should be following you should be supporting um, they do awesome work. And if you have never checked out their funding structure, um, and get to know what they're about in terms of how they operate and, and where does your money actually go? They are really transparent with that and really upfront with that. And so check that, check them out. They are a charity. They are an organization worth supporting. So more information more information can be found ab about them and their programs at charitywater.org thanks for tuning in on this memorial day we will be back in just a minute with mark snell pehila mo pani bachcha avastha ma randa khari maile maile kiyo kalpana gareko thina ki tara aile ko bachcha harlai maile shodda khari athawa unarai class ma gaera tumi ke bhanne bhanera bhanda khari उन्हीं बच्चा एक क्लास दुई क्लास तीन तीन क्लास का बच्चा उन्हें रूप में प्रयुक्त कर Welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in, tuning in, watching, listening this Memorial Day morning, 2019. We are really excited to have joining us this morning, Mark Snell of the Fort Worth Vaqueros and the Fort Worth Vaqueros Academy. Mark, welcome to the show. How are you this morning? I'm doing great, Daniel. Thanks for having me on. 
So, Mark, give us a little bit of, of your story, kind of where did where did you grow up and, and how did you get involved in the game, playing the game, loving the game, um, in, in terms of, of your, your personal story before we get into the Fort Worth uh, Vaqueros and the work you're doing there? Okay, I, I, I basically grew up in the Buffalo area in New York, uh, not a big soccer uh, area, and this is going back uh, a long time ago. Um, and essentially, most of the guys involved in the game were, um, you know, I- immigrants. Uh, but how I got involved in the game was was kind of interesting because uh, I never really played till later on. I I was a typical kid that played, you know, street hockey, uh, basketball flag football, tackle football, baseball, all the sports. Um, and, and most of the kids in my neighborhood were three, four years older. So I was always playing with older guys. And uh, they were all like different sport athletes as well. And in the fall, um, during the high school season, they uh, played soccer. And when I was, I think, uh, like seven seventh grade, maybe, um, seventh or eighth grade, they, they asked me to be the manager uh, of the team, the varsity team at the high school, which was two blocks away. Um, that, that basically was a ball collector and water boy. Um, but when they used to scrimmage every day, they only had one goalkeeper. So they threw this skinny kid in the goal and uh, I had a tough time scoring and that's basically how I fell in love with the game. And, uh, that's how I got my start. I was fortunate enough to be a high school all American, went to Hartford college, which was a, uh, a power and division one power in upstate New York. Um, uh, had the, the good fortune of playing professionally in the old NASL for the, um, Edmonton drillers. Of course, the leagues were very uh, unstable at the time. I ended up in uh, back in Buffalo playing for the Stallions uh, in the M- MISL, the indoor league, and then finished playing the last two years in Wichita, uh, um, Kansas for the Wings. Uh, while I was in Edmonton, I actually went on loan for about a year in Germany with a third division team. But uh, that's basically, um, you know, how my playing career uh, got started. So as a goalkeeper and growing up in Buffalo, kind of coming into the game, I guess, in your, you know, seventh, eighth grade years and then kind of playing in high school, what was what was that transition like in terms of of, of your ability to use your feet getting started so late in the game? Were you able to kind of adapt? Was that something you were always kind of around a ball, just – not formal. What was what was that transition like uh, in terms of of being a goalkeeper and being able to kind of use your feet coming into the game uh, a little bit later? Uh, great question, and uh, I'm dating myself here, but in the era that I played, uh, you know, high school club and and uh, professionally outdoors, uh, you could pass it back to the goalkeeper. And he could pick it up with his hands unlimited amount of time. Um, so, and in most cases as well, the goalkeeper never really took goal kicks either. 
So I was in an era where I didn't need to use my feet. However, um, when I played, uh, you know, approximately four years in the uh, MISL, they had the same rule, basically, that we have now outdoors. The uh, When you pass it back, the goalkeeper must use his feet. So um, I really you know, had to work on my foot skills at a very late age. And um, I I just happened to be someone that could pick it up fairly quick. Um, And and I have to step back, too, that when I was in college, uh, we played a lot of uh, small-sided games um, in in training and, uh, um, you know, just amongst ourselves. So, uh, looking back, I did have a little bit of a base, but it came late in life, which is typically not the uh, uh, ideal as far as uh, you know your skill acquisition. For sure, uh, and that's one of the things I was curious about. It, it was a different era. It was a different uh, time, and and obviously, as you stated, different rules, uh, which provided uh, you the opportunity to kind of learn on the job a little bit uh, and, and grow with with the rule changes or in the case of, of changing leagues. Um, so you, you, you played, you, you played professionally, you had uh, an opportunity to go play in Germany, experience a different culture there, come back to the States, and then you make this transition into coaching and, and what kind of led you to do that? What, what, was the spark that said, Hey, I want to stay involved in the game now that I'm not going to play anymore. And I want to, I want to pass it on to the next generation. I want to help the next generation uh, of players develop. Yeah, that's a good question. And, um, so when I re- quote unquote retired, and that's when kind of the leagues were all winding down financially. Um, and at one point in time, I think when I stopped playing, there was there weren't any professional outdoor leagues. But when I went back to Buffalo, and again, um, the club culture was almost non-existent in, in regards to being able to, uh, you know, make a living, a part-time living, whatever, uh, coaching. So <clears throat> I got involved with a, um, a retail business. But I always wanted to, and, and some other jobs, but I always wanted to coach. Um, I did a little club coaching in the area and, and um, you know, high school, but it was nothing, um, you know, permanent or, or, or uh, you know, it, it, it just it, it wasn't uh, a, a culture. Of, of the game of where I wanted to be, having seen it in in Europe, um, and literally one day I, you know, was involved in a retail business, working a million hours. Looked in the mirror and said, "I, you know, I I, I hate this. I I need to get into a soccer culture." So I <clears throat> called my coach, uh, former coach college, uh, Jim Lennox, who pretty much has been the biggest influence in my coaching career and, you know, told him what I wanted to do and wanted to uh, go back to my alma mater and assist him. And at the time I, I went back 
as a volunteer assistant and found a job there and, um, you know, worked my way up to his first assistant. Five years later, um, uh, I used to come down to the Dallas-Fort Worth area to recruit uh, from when I was uh, an assistant in, at Hartwick. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, I, I saw the passion down here and the club system was set up. So in 2003, I moved down here. Um, and it was one of the few areas at the time that you could make a, uh, you know, a living coaching. Um, and that's basically what brought me down here. So you, you come down to the, the Dallas area, the Dallas Fort Worth, uh, Metroplex and get involved in the game. What were, what were your goals when you came down personal goals? Were you wanting to work with? you know, senior teams, first teams, were you wanting to get into youth development? Was there certain ages that you were interested in? Or was it just, hey, I just want to, I want to coach. I don't really care what level. I don't care with who. I just want to coach. What, what what was kind of your ambition at that point uh, of your career? Well, um, in college, due to all the NCAA regulations, you essentially are only allowed to coach the players about, uh, I, I'm sure it's changed, but roughly three months out of the year. So I spent nine months recruiting. Uh, every weekend I was gone, uh, you know, sitting next to the same coaches at tournaments, you know, uh, identifying players that uh, uh, you thought could be a fit at your, your university or college. Um, so when I got down here, I, I got connected with a, a club, um, and I, I always perceived that, you know, I, I wanted to coach at the highest level, uh, the highest adult level. Um, and uh, at the time, uh, I, I, I moved rather quickly to one of the uh, bigger clubs here, uh, Dallas Inter, and then uh, essentially six months later, FC Dallas, a professional team who – did not have any youth uh, club at all. They swallowed up uh, Dallas Inter, Inter and, and it became FC Dallas uh, Academy. So it, at that time, I had started to work with youth, uh, meaning uh, you know under eight, under nine. Um, and quite frankly, at that time, I didn't know what I was doing when I look back. Um, although, although in general, I knew that again, small-sided games was always, um, you know, part of my DNA in regards to uh, player development. Um, but uh, when I, when FC Dallas swallowed us up, um, they, and at that time, uh, what they referred to, and, and again, academy, the word academy is so uh, often of many definitions, but they were calling the academy or juniors academy under seven up to under 10. And here in the, this area, you go quote selected under 11. Uh, so they, they asked for somebody to get involved with that uh, age group on a full-time basis. And uh, they made a proposal to me and um, I agreed. And one of the better, uh, um, licenses that I in diplomas that I, that I took um, was the national youth license by US youth soccer 
And I was really fascinated by it. And that kind of, um, you know, shot me into that, uh, that era, not era, that, that realm of, uh, youth development. It's, uh, as we all know, it's pretty much the critical ages, um, and that early, uh, and early childhood. But the, the course really opened my eyes on, on you know, treating a, a child like he is a child and, you know, a six and seven year old is very different from an eight and nine year old. Um, another, another guy that got me into it was, uh, Tom Goodman, a friend of mine when I was on the region one staff back in, uh, on the Northeast. Um, he was the, uh, director of, uh, U S youth soccer coaching education. And he traveled extensively all the time. But when he was in town, we'd get together and uh, and we'd talk youth development. I learned uh, learned a lot from Tom, and uh, but also learned to uh, kind of get a passion for that that age group, and it, it has remained uh, to me to this day. So you have coached, you know, different levels. You've coached first teams. You you have coached youth players, etc. Tell us a little bit of the difference in terms of coaching at that, you know, six, seven, eight-year-old type uh, age range versus uh, maybe some older player, youth players, or in the case of first teams, you know, adults. What have you noticed in your coaching, your uh, personal uh, style that changes dealing with those different age groups? Well, uh, my philosophy, uh, especially with the younger age groups, is um, a mixture of, uh, uh, but essentially based on street soccer. Um, I, I, I like the, the kids to basically play all the time. And it's not just throw a ball out there and play. There, there's, uh, you know, certain constraints and, and but but it's a lot of the kids are learning from mistakes. Um, uh, I, I'm very fortunate that I work with really really talented kids, and I mean seven, eight, nine year olds that are and, and again everything I do is age appropriate. But they're they've got a a very very high level for their age uh, technical base and. You know, most of the kids are um, either Hispanic, uh, you know, African, um, but they they just bring different ideas to the game. And I I firmly believe that <clears throat> I see kids, new kids come all the time that they're you can almost see that they're playing with a handbrake on uh, because of their prior coaches banging them on the head with a coaching manual to do this and do that. Uh, I, I I want creative players and uh, allow lots of freedom. Um, but in regard, in, 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 as opposed to the older players, I, I think that, um, like when I was coaching our MPSL team, we, you're, you're coaching players that they're, they're really, you don't have time to establish a culture. You, um, You've got guys that have been coached, uh, you know, 18 guys, and they've all been coached by 18 different uh, coaches and, and been involved in 18 different cultures. And 
uh, and cu- cultures I'm in uh, as far as how they train and their expectations and preparation and all that stuff. Um, I, I didn't really enjoy it because uh, it seemed that um, it, it was just too short a time to coach. The MPA season is you know, several months long, um, and it, it was it was difficult. I had to coach in, uh, a lot in, it, as if you were coaching a national team when you, you couldn't work on a lot of tactics. You were working on big-picture items. Um, but as our academy <clears throat> grows, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be involved with the older age groups. I'm really looking forward to that. So you're, you're in Fort Worth, Texas, and you are reaching these younger kids that are playing in the Fort Worth Vicaris Academy. And how are you finding them? How are you bringing them into your program? And what, what are the, the uh, financial requirements of families to participate with the program as you're going out and kind of sh- spreading the word of, you know, the Fort Worth Becares Academy and what you're trying to build? Well, our, our academy is free. Um, the parents' obligation, it, it, from a financial point of view, is to buy the uniform. <clears throat> and we have... Uh, uh, individual fundraisers that if the parents want uh, want to, they can use that and have their, uh, their son, you know, earn the, enough money for their, uh, their uniform. Um, in regards to uh, the players, you know, you, usually your best source of, of players are your parents. Uh, and local contacts, and being new here and starting a, a new academy, we, you know, I was starting from scratch. So, I did a lot of uh, player identification in the local leagues, <clears throat> specifically um, the Hispanic leagues that are independent. That uh, you have to find out about them. Uh, there, there's no website, no, you know, schedules are usually just text the night before type of thing. Um, but I, uh, and usually I was, uh, I'll just say that the only non-Hispanic person at these, uh, leagues and, you know, games watching, but, uh, um, even when I was, uh, I'll mention, even when I was at FC Dallas and I started the premier program, which was kind of putting all the, the, uh, um, the most talented kids together, beginning at under nine. Uh, you know, FC Dallas typically has five, six, seven, eight, nine teams in the same age group. So um, that was, in my opinion, essential for, for development. Um, but uh, um, it, it, it's still, uh, it, it still was difficult, but, but uh, identifying the players, you go and you see, you know, one maybe two players in every team that could actually play. And I would just invite them out and, uh, um, you know, train. And, uh, you know, every kid likes to play. I, I think it's said that the, the most asked question by a youth soccer player is, hey, coach, when are we going to play? And uh, so, so that, 
that that's the basis of the, as I mentioned earlier about street soccer and and uh, uh, a game based philosophy. <clears throat> so, getting the players, you you've got the academy up and running. It's it's been up and running for what a year? Is that right? Is is it been? Correct. Yeah. So you, you, you're up and running now for a year. What have What have you learned in your first year of of running this um, free to play academy for this community? You know, what lessons have you learned? What have you seen in the kids? What have you seen with the, with the parents and the families, etc. Um, that that you think, hey, this can help us going forward, or maybe these are some things we want to change going forward that you've learned here operating in your your first year. Um, yeah, I, I think everything went pretty much how I thought it would be. Um, uh, and, and again, it's not easy starting out because you, you know, my reputation was in Dallas and Fort Worth is kind of like a, a different world and a, and a world away. <clears throat> but um, um, it, it's gone well. Um, we do things a little bit differently in the sense of our, our structure. Um, for instance, the 2011 age group, I, I should mention we have 2010s, which are under nines, 2011s, which are under eights. And we're just starting, uh, you know, to get together, uh, 2012. Um, <clears throat> the, the, you know, obviously the difference with, with, when you're not uh, when you're not a pay-to-play club is you the club have more of a con- control in the sense that um you know if, if the person has big issues or wants to you know inject politics into the game and all the sorts of stuff that you see with a pay-to-play system uh we we basically don't have to deal with that However, I haven't had to deal with that um, um, because it's all about relationships at this age. There's no obviously no contracts, and it's not like Europe where you register the player with your your, your uh, national association, and you can only leave at certain times of the year, etc. Um, but what we do different is the under seven and under eight. Um, we don't put them in a league. It, it's it's a training environment only at under nine that's when we actually play in the formal leagues around uh and enter tournaments and you would you would think that and again i encourage the under sevens and under eights they keep playing with their you know current teams whether it be in the local hispanic leagues the indoor leagues you know wherever they're playing and uh one might think from the outside like, well, how many kids actually show up for practice if that's all you're doing is practice? I, I have no problems with that at all. Again, because the kids love to play. And kids, you know, boys that are very talented have egos. And in a lot of them, this was a different environment because they're used to playing on a team and against a team in their games. Uh, where they're the, you know, they're the most talented player. So all of a sudden you put that, you know, you, you, you get 12, 15 boys together that are all very talented, and it's, it's a really interesting 
and dynamic environment where they're learning from each other and, you know, it's harder. They've got to compete harder. Um, and we, we play. Uh, um, I would say, you know, 80% of the practice is playing and 99% is with the ball. Um, so, so but what I have learned uh, is that this new, this new uh, change in, in the, the birth year, um, these 2012, they're, they're, these kids are, you know, six. And, and uh, you know, some of them are just too young. And I, I was talking to a buddy of mine uh, yesterday, um, and he's talking about, yeah, we're getting together the 2013s and 2014s, and it's just, I think Marco Sullivan talks about it on, on Twitter all the time. It's a, you know, race to the bottom. Uh, I, I, I don't. I think you can do some good stuff uh, at those early ages, but I'm I'm not convinced you got to. I think it's more important that we all know Tom Byer and his soccer starts at home. I think that's more crucial that that. Kids are playing with their their you know father, uncle, brother, and just being around the ball more. Um, the structured environment is just too robotic for me. Um, but I, I, I apologize, Dan, because I'm I'm uh, widely known for going off on tangents when we talk about youth soccer. But uh, um, I, I've learned I always learn a lot from the parents. And, and, and uh, the players, but everything's going pretty well. Um, I, I have no complaints at all. And again, I'm, I'm blessed to work with all these talented kids who, uh, you know, pretty much amaze me what they do every time I'm in practice. So you, your, your programming is based on, you know, the love of the ball, playing with the ball, learning with the ball, everything's with the ball. And you brought up Tom Beyer. He, um, in his, his book, Soccer Starts at Home, and it's kind of his life mission to get countries around the world to embrace this mentality, this philosophy, uh, in terms of keeping a ball at their feet, you know, at all times. We, we have, have embraced that. Uh, mentality in our own home and with, with our boys and, and basically just said, look, ball, you know, balls are everywhere and uh, play with them, have them, you know, we're not going to ban them. Just please don't break anything if at all possible, but balls are everywhere. And, and that philosophy carries over into your training sessions as well. One of the things that I think you guys have have done that I wanted to check out and was able to to, to do uh, to do so when I was uh, out in Fort Worth a few months ago was to check out your training facility and your training center. And you guys have documented uh, a lot of that on social media. But I, I want to spend a minute just talking about that training facility and how that helps you. Uh, fund your program, how that helps you uh, provide a, a training base, training operation uh, center for your program. And, you know, and tell us a little bit about that piece of this story and, and what it was originally and what you guys have been able to do to shape that into what it is today. Yeah. Um, 
when I got involved with this project, it was no more than an MPSL team with the idea to have a future <clears throat> youth academy. Um, and the youth academy was going to be free. <clears throat> Excuse me. But obviously you can't have a free academy if you've got to rent uh, a facility. So that, that kind of stalled the youth academy for um, quite a few years. Uh, while we tried to um, somehow, you know, build, partner, whatever you want uh, on a facility. <clears throat> Fort Worth is, is a very different um, um, city in regards to facilities. Um, they were just named the 13th largest uh, city in the United States, and there is no professional teams here. Our MPSL team <clears throat> is the highest level um, team that's playing here, and that's, as you know, a fourth division amateur team. By the way, we do have aspirations to bring a a you know a second division professional team here, whether it be you know USL, MPSL Pro, whatever. That that that's the ultimate goal. <clears throat> but there's a huge uh, adult league, 11 v 11 uh, Hispanic culture here. I, I think there's three leagues that total over 250 teams. So the fields, and, and they're they're in very good condition, are all uh, maintained and programmed and owned by the city uh, and the parks department. And they have a rule of 12 games per week. So to keep the grass fields uh, in, in good condition. So literally there's no place to rent. Uh, and that's where, why there's, there's not a lot of inner city Fort Worth clubs. There's a lot of clubs that are based um, up in North, it's referred to as North Fort Worth um, because there's facilities up there and there's uh, perfect areas for the pay to play culture. Cause it's more of affluent areas up there. Um, so we had to find uh, and develop a business plan. So <clears throat> we met. I, I kind of went over this with you, and it's a long story. But uh, I found on Google Maps in a city park one day uh, four tennis courts that were uh, side by side. And uh, come to find out that they weren't being used. Uh, they were built in 1915, so they're well over 100 years old. The concrete was actually good. The fence around it was falling down. Um, you know, the, the tennis nets were chaining fence. It's kind of a you know inner city setup. <clears throat> so we began to envision uh, what this could be like uh, when we walked it off. It, it it was the perfect size for a seven versus seven field. It met the U.S. Um, US soccer uh, criteria for a, a U9, U10, 77 field. So we, we started this whole thing. It took about two years. We we're very fortunate that uh, <clears throat> City of Fort Worth uh, saw our vision. Uh, uh, and obviously, if we were a pay to play club, they would have never. Uh, partnered with us. Uh, they saw us taking a part of a, a park, and it was a secluded area of the park that wasn't really connected to the rest of the 80 acres. 
that um, could basically increase uh, uh, traffic uh, from people-wise um, and kind of direct some of the questionable characters and whatever they were doing there to kind of move on. And that's exactly what's happened. So what we did is um, put a pad over the concrete, uh, put down turf, uh, which I think I told you I, I know more about synthetic turf than I ever wanted to know in my life. But I uh, my research led me to uh, a company that's brand new. It's called Pure Play Sports Turf. And uh, they are a non-infill turf. So in other words, there's no rubber in it, which was important to me because, as you know, when they fill these turf fields up with rubber all the way to the top, uh, you, you can't get underneath the ball. So, uh, you know, here I'm developing players in the field that would be uh, teaching the kids how to strike the ball the wrong way. Um, so it was important for me to find uh, something as close to grass as possible. And this, again, is much thicker. It's, it's two or three times heavier than uh, normal, traditional turf. Doesn't have the rubber infill. Plays and looks just like grass. And it's been a, it's been a godsend. Uh, I can't say enough about the turf. Um, but uh, so getting back to the field, so uh, we put bench areas in, and our, our plan was to uh, run 77 adult leagues on the weekends, um, and that would be our main source of income to fund the academy. <clears throat> we also have a 10-foot-high fence around it. We have a uh, management agreement with the fourth uh, City of Fort Worth, so it's it's locked, but we have uh, eight foot high windscreen banners from sponsors that also uh, um, go to supporting our academy. Um, so those are basically the two uh, income streams <clears throat> that we had planned on. What we didn't plan on is uh, a pickup. Uh, culture that we started. So uh, every Friday we have free pickup for two hours in the evening, 6 to 8 p.m. And that was part of our uh, contract with the city that we would provide so many hours a year open to the community. <clears throat> and we do other things for the community. Right now the uh, Fort Worth uh, Fire Department is practicing there. They're getting ready for their firefighters uh um, uh, games that they have, and they actually play 77, so it's a perfect uh, scenario for the firefighters. Um, but we started on a Wednesday night, um, five-dollar pickup, and we uh, we had almost 40 people the first night, and it was it was madness because guys weren't playing enough. Um, they were they were getting into arguments, but right away we, you know, we pulled some guys together and say, hey, you know, how do you want us to run this? And they said, pick a number, sign up sheet. That you know, that's how they do it in basketball. So we said, okay, what's the number? And so they they came to an agreement on a number of thirty. So uh, uh, that that's been another source of income, and it's expanded to now it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So when I get done at eight o'clock with the uh, 
the academy uh, practices um, from 8.30 to 10 is pickup. And uh, <clears throat> they're, there about, they're there most of the time by quarter to eight to get on the sign-up sheet. Uh, and we require an online waiver uh, that they have to sign. They can a one-time waiver that they can do right at the field. And to date, I think we we are over 540 people uh, that have signed up to play pickup. So uh, it, it's been great for the community. Uh, most of these guys, 90, 90, 95% Latino guys, love the game, passionate about the game. Um, but they, they, they get there early and watch the academy trainings as well. And, you know, they all know that it doesn't sound like much, you're $5, but, you know, that adds up over time, and uh, they're supporting a, a free academy. And most of those guys, you know, grew up in an era where they couldn't afford to play uh, club soccer because of the cost and because, you know, all the major clubs were located in Dallas and just too far away uh, based on distance and traffic. Have you seen uh, having that that training session lead right into the pickup uh, culture that it that is surrounding the program itself? Have you seen a little bit of that uh, almost Big Brother kind of their they they feel good about the fact that they're paying the five bucks, they're coming out to play, and yes, it's personal enjoyment for them, but they also know. Hey, that funding is helping you know this next generation of kids get an opportunity. Have you seen that with the, some of the pickup players? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's been uh, most of the time we have a waiting list there, so there there might be two, three, five, ten guys, and uh, if you're on the waiting list, you don't have to pay. Um, but there are a lot of guys that you know, throw five bucks at us and say, hey, it's going towards the kids. Um, but I think that they, they, they really enjoy watching the kids, um, and I think it makes them kind of feel, you know, uh, think and feel what were they doing when they were, you know, seven and eight years old. Um, um, because, again, my, you know, my sessions are all, you know, game-based. We're playing 3v3, 4v4 small goals and it's it's winter stays on format so it's 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 really competitive and um but uh no they 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 definitely know they're a part of it and we we make sure they know so as we kind of uh come come to a close here i i want to ask you it's a question i've been asking a lot of our guests if if you were made king of american soccer for a day and you had supreme power. You could do anything uh, in your day in charge of American soccer. What would you do? What would you change? What rule would you implement? What would you change about the soccer, et cetera, uh, with your one day in charge? Uh, how many hours do you got to talk about this? <laughs> uh, we, 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 um, we don't have hours, but we have a few minutes. So uh, give it to us. Well, uh, you might have saw on social media, I, I met up with Bob Bradley, um, 
uh, last uh, Sunday. Uh, he, he flew in. Uh, we re- reconnected, but we, we've known each other for years, and obviously he's had a busy life, and our paths just haven't crossed. Uh, we talked for two hours and mostly about youth development. And what he said is what I, I agree with 100%. We, we need to build mini fields everywhere, whether they're turf, concrete, whatever, and, you know, have them available for kids to play. Um, everybody knows about Germany's. Uh, demise back in the early 2000s, and they had the quote-unquote 600 mini pitch, uh, 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 you know, plan, and they built player uh, pitches just to get players playing. I, I think that would be the first thing I would do is just get more access to kids. I mean, Chris Kessel uh, on Twitter. I mean. Com- he sees it all the time that, you know, you've got this brand new complex, but it's locked all the time. And I, and I know that it might sound ironic that I'm talking about that um, because ours is locked all the time, but we open it up uh, and, and have play dates and so on and so forth as much as we can. Uh, unfortunately, there, there, vandalism might occur, and that's one of the protectorants that we need. But uh, I think that we can build mini fields, 4v4 fields in different places that are basically uh, vandalism proof and just have it where kids can just go and play and and, and just play. That would be my suggestion and, and uh, directive, I guess. I think it's a great, a great place to start uh, in terms of changing the culture, providing more opportunities for more players, more backgrounds, socioeconomic statuses, uh, race, etc., giving giving more access uh, to to players to be able to do that. I know uh, sometimes when you're dealing with uh, outdoor facilities, especially if they're they're natural grass facilities, you you know have to deal with the, some of those limitations, uh, especially if they're public parks in terms of when the fields are available, maintenance, etc. And you know it, it does it's at times uh, create some issues as, as well as um, access issues. But having having that uh, access to those mini pitches uh, as well is is to me uh, a, would be a, an incredible thing. I, I've seen it in Europe uh, when we've been over there and, and to watch the kids, you know, you're out just kind of walking down the street. Here's a little mini pitch right off the side of the sidewalk and the kids just jump in for 10, 15 minutes. Um, and you watch the joy of the game and the, you know, the attempts to nutmeg and to clown each other and to play. And it's, you know, it, it is it is very much something that's missing from our, our soccer culture that we – have thrived on in this country in basketball and that pickup culture and, and having, you know, those opportunities to, to, you know, get together and shoot hoops, um, in, in so many neighborhoods, regardless of, of your socioeconomic status. And we need to make the game of soccer accessible like that. Um, and, and if we, you know, if we do that, then I do think we can help, 
um, you know, get players playing uh, and get access to players um, that, you know, right now just don't have a lot of access. And, you know, you think when, when you're when you are not from the Dallas Fort Worth area and you you hear, you know, uh, talk about Dallas or Fort Worth or DFW, you think of it as just kind of one big, you know, um, you know, amalgamation of an area. Like it's just kind of one monolithic city area, metro area, et cetera. And although it, it is from a population standpoint, to go from one end of Fort Worth to the other end of Dallas is a pretty long drive. And then you throw in traffic and and you you start to realize that you know, you could be dealing with a, a two-hour one-way commute depending on traffic. And, you know, when you think of Dallas and you think of Fort Worth as a monolith, uh, monolithic setup from a metro standpoint, uh, you're really doing yourself a disservice. So you guys, you know, bringing programming into Fort Worth um, and bringing access into Fort Worth and then obviously with some of the aspirations of, Fort Worth Vaqueros with a senior team, it, it makes complete sense because, um, you know, we should have metro areas like Dallas, like Fort Worth, um, you know, in an open system, having multiple professional teams uh, playing the game of soccer in the in these areas. Places like Atlanta with its uh, massive sprawl could, could support multiple teams and so many other cities in this country. We, we have thought about things in my view, in the wrong way when it comes to where pro teams could go and should go. I think the market should be open and allow that to play itself out. And you guys serving Fort Worth in the way that you are um, is preparing uh, not just the Vaqueros, but pre preparing Fort Worth for, for that day uh, to come as well. So, Look, uh, Mark, I really do appreciate you coming on the show, and I love what you're doing there in Fort Worth. Got to got to see some of it firsthand when, when I was out there a couple months ago to check out the turf, check out the field, and, and obviously you and I ha had, a, had a nice chat uh, as well. And so I appreciate you coming on the show and uh, spending some time with us. If, if people wanted to follow the, the Fort Worth Vicaros Academy and that program and that project, uh, how could they find out more information on it? Well, we're, we're, we're on social media. Uh, Facebook, you can find us at Fort Worth Vaqueros Academy. Um, Twitter is Vaqueros Academy. Instagram is Fort Worth Vaqueros Academy. Um, I'm on social media at Mark Snell Football, F-U-T-B-O-L. Um, and uh, uh, the, the MPSL team is uh, F.T. Worth Vaqueros on Twitter and Fort Worth Vaqueros on um, Facebook, and I believe it's Fort Worth Vaqueros FC on uh, Instagram. Uh, but we're out there. We, we post regularly. We're, we're, we've pretty much built this club on social media. Um, so we're, we're definitely out there. I, I want to say thanks to you um, because you are, you are fighting the biggest fight in my opinion, uh, next to, you know, a youth development is the, is the pro rail movement. Um, and that, that, it was great talking to you about that because you're so knowledgeable, uh, from top to bottom, um, on that subject. And it, I, I'm a big believer of it. Um, 
And I'll leave you with this note that people tell me, because Fort Worth and Dallas people uh, don't don't uh, consider themselves one. Um, Fort Worth people kind of have a little uh, axe to grind, so to speak. And again, I'm not a native here, but this is where it, where it comes from. But uh, to sum it all up, as a Fort Worth person says, uh, Dallas calls it sushi. We call it bait. Oh, I love it. And I think that's a great place to land. Uh, and, and, and having family out in that area, I, I can, um, I can, I can back up what you're, what you're saying as well. So, um, thanks. Look, I appreciate the compliments there and I, and I really do appreciate you coming on, spending some time with us, keep uh, fighting the good fight there in Fort Worth and, uh, and helping the next generation, um, develop and, and learn the game and love the game and play the game. Uh, we, we will continue to follow, uh, your project there and, and what you have going on and, uh, look forward to, uh, having you back on the show again. Anytime brother. Take care. Thank you. That was Mark Snell of the Fort Worth Vicaros Academy. I really appreciate him. Uh, coming on um, and, and spending some time with us, chatting with us, etc. Et uh, for those of you watching live this morning, thanks uh, for your patience uh, as we were solving some technical uh, difficulties this morning, but we got up and running and got through it on this Memorial Day 2019. Uh, I want to leave you with this. Uh, the, the world's richest soccer game has kicked off um, about uh, 11 minutes ago. You can find it on ESPN+. Plus. It is the championship playoff final. The winner makes it to the Premier League, the ultimate prize in England in terms of the league level that you can play at. It's worth so much money. No more money is earned on a game playing as a prize than this game every year. And uh, it's Aston Villa and Derby County. Um playing in this championship playoff final still nil nil check it out espn plus it is the hallmark game and we could have this in america if the leaders in american soccer specifically in the u.s soccer federation actually started doing their job uh and our i think our game would be even bigger one day if we embraced our duties thanks for tuning in thanks for watching as always you can learn more about the show at daniel workman on twitter and instagram facebook.com forward slash wrkmn everyone have a great memorial day we will see everyone tomorrow